This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On October 2nd, 2020, archaeologist Peggy Brunash from the University of Glasgow met with a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss two articles from the fall 2019 special issue of Transforming Anthropology, a publication of the Association of Black Anthropologists. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio Siam. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Radio Siam. My name is Maya Diedrich, and I'm the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate here at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest for this Radio Siam's episode. Dr. Peggy Brunash is a Haitian-American historical archaeologist who has studied contexts in the Caribbean, especially Guadeloupe, in Benin, West Africa, and the United States. She received her PhD from the University of Texas at Austin in 2011. She has worked in cultural resource management as a culinary consultant for Historic Arkansas Museum, British Science Festival, Scottish Music and Food Festivals, and BBC Radio. As a BBC BAME, Black Asian Minority Ethnic Expert Voice, she has been a guest historian and archaeology expert for the BBC series Black and British, A Forgotten History with David Olushoga, and A History of Minstrelsy in Britain with David Olushoga and Hollywood actor David Harewood, and several other documentary series for the Discovery Science Channel and Britain's Channel 4. Since completing her dissertation, she has been a lecturer at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and Dundee University and the University of Glasgow, where she now works in Scotland, and received a Ford Foundation postdoctoral fellowship to direct research and public outreach on the Parker Academy with Northern Kentucky University and affiliated with the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Recently, Dr. Brunash has begun as the first director of the newly established Beniba Center for Slavery Studies at the University of Glasgow. As a touchstone for conversation today, we read her article in Transforming Anthropology, the Journal of the Association of Black Anthropologists, entitled Mainstreaming African Diasporic Foodways When Academia is Not Enough. The article appeared in a special issue of the journal called The Marathon Continues, New Directions in African Diaspora Archaeology and we read the introduction to that issue as well. As part of our podcast today, there are five students who are members of SIAMS and who will contribute in leading the discussion. They'll introduce themselves in turn as they ask questions of our guest. So today I just wanted to start things off by saying, I don't think I've ever read an article quite like this one um, that you wrote. Dr. Vrnash, and I thought it was really effective and powerful. You accomplished so much, including providing the reader with a brief history of the Atlantic slave trade and Scotland's role in particular, and then the approach you take when conducting outreach programs for the Scottish public, within which you introduce your own work on Guadeloupe. So can you tell us what inspired you to structure your article this way? Um, hi. Uh First off, there was no music for me. I, I thought I'd have some intro music and no, no, it's not that kind of podcast. Okay. 
to answer your question, I suppose I structured my publication or this article in the way I have struggled with academia since moving to Scotland and had to look to alternative ways of still educating people and using my work to do it. And I found that people seem to be far more receptive when I'm having conversations with them, with them rather than trying to either find a, a decent job as, as a professor or even getting the opportunity to, to use my work in, in terms of educating students. I found people were far more receptive when you start talking about food in general. And so I thought, maybe, maybe this isn't something unique to my, just to me, this frustration with academia in terms of trying to find a job or even having the job, but not being able to access as many people as I want. And maybe um, I should write about it. Thank you. I wanted to ask about a particular point you made in this article um, that people, enslaved peoples at this plantation site derived pleasure and satisfaction from their meals when typically it's thought of as they're very stodgy. Um, and I wanted to ask the, about the importance of making that point to these audiences. For me, it feels very emotional and I, I would believe that it is very emotional for and meaningful for descendant communities. I wanted to ask, you know, how people send to, um, how people uh, receive this. Um, and yes, I'm sorry, I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Dusty Bridges. I'm a third year in the anthropology department at Cordell, uh, studying archaeology of Northeast North America. Uh, thank you, Dusty, for that that question, or a couple of questions. Um, yes, there is always a an emotional connection in terms of talking about slavery, whether it's in, in the kind of uh, need to disassociate and, and some sort of guilt from those who happen to be white, or in terms of those like myself that are descended from enslaved Africans and the need to see or contextualize our history in a manner that does not always keep us in this place of passivity. Talking about food has been that, that vehicle to do so. And I've, I've found that people tend to drop their, their guard a little bit. Scotland's a unique, Scotland is in a very strange position right now. Unlike England, which has always had to grapple with its uh, involvement in the slave trade, Scotland has, has forgotten, and I would say on purpose, that it even participated. Even though you walk around Glasgow, right, one of the largest cities in, in Scotland, and you see, you see names of streets like Jamaica, Virginia, Tobago, and, and no, one, no one has anything to say about it. And I always go, don't you think that's kind of strange? Why is there a street called Jamaica Street in Scotland? And they're like, look, all I know is it wasn't us. That was the, that was the English. And so there was this, always this block 
to even talk about it. In 2007, there was the uh, bicentennial commemoration of the uh, abolishing of the slave trade act. And the only way that people wanted to talk about it was, yay us, we ended slavery, we were the first to abolish it, we as abolitionists were the ones to tell the rest of the world to stop participating. But then when you try to trace back to how it started, or, you know, this little fact of over 70% of Jamaican surnames are Scottish, again, the wall goes up. Food knocks it all down. They love jerk food. They love Caribbean food. Lots of people still have vacations in the Caribbean, you know, pre-COVID, I suppose. So talking about slave foodways allows that, that, that change. And interestingly enough, there's this emotional connection when they start thinking about Scottish peasant food that they grew up on and they still love and go, you know what? My granny made the best stovies that's like uh, like hash. It's basically like hash. And they have positive memories of something that's still technically seen by others as demeaning and lower, lower class foods. No different than the way slave food was. And so it allows them to kind of see this connection in a way that does not keep enslaved people in a place of passivity. Hi, my name is Ethan Dickerman. I'm a first year uh, Masters of Archaeology student, and I focus on historical archaeology in the American Northeast, particularly in the Hudson Valley. Um, in reading your piece, I was interested in uh, a point where you noted that many of your brains, uh, many of your sessions turned into brainstorming uh, discussions on how to better integrate discussions of the transatlantic slave trade and Scotland's role in it. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and some of the proposals of the participants. Thank you, Ian. Uh, Ethan. Ooh, bad start. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, the brainstorming sessions were always interesting um, and would often happen as people are literally shoving food into their mouths. Uh, because there was this response of Scottish or um, English people talking about how much they enjoy Creole cuisine, how much certain aspects of it remind them of their own upbringing and, and, um, and I'm putting quote, you know, air quotes, peasant food. They always want to say, we need to hear more about this. We should be talking more about this. I didn't learn this in school. Okay. So if that's the case, then how do we get this out to more people? How do we embrace um, publicly archeology span that is, that is um, providing these, these new alternatives to, to the production of knowledge in a manner that serves a, a, a wider audience. And so it, it's through those conversations with people that I would have these, usually they started out as me having these um, small lectures while we're doing a soul food festival. And, you know, a lot of people 
in, in Britain, in Scotland in particular, are well aware of all these songs that they love and they talk about cornbread and things like that, but they never could taste it. And then I allow, I give them the opportunity to, to taste it and then start telling them the history of it. And they're riveted, but it shouldn't be just in the situation of having this food festival that I can talk to them about it. So some of these ideas um, where they would say to me, you should talk about this at a science festival. You should probably think about um, doing this elsewhere. We'd like to hear more about this, but also meaning they want to eat more as well. So the idea of lecturing and serving food at the same time, this idea of consuming history is, is how it evolved. It, it was over a, a set of years, but every time I would bring food, people were far more receptive. And so I just kind of kept that as part of my program. And then I tried to expand into uh, festivals like the, like the British Science Festival that tried to engage general audiences in a, in a manner that reaches more than the 10 students or 30 students I would have in the class per year. Thank you. Hi, my name is Rebecca Gertes. I'm a PhD student in the classics department studying uh, food archaeology and food residues and pottery in the Mediterranean. And um, I just want to piggyback off of Ethan's question. Um, I love the idea of using food to help overcome audience reluctance and, and, that, and build solidarity and openness. And that was just such an exciting part of this article for me. Um, I wanted to ask specifically about the um, example you gave of the 2017 British Science Festival, where you, you held the event at a Jamaican restaurant. Um, and it, it, I sort of wanted to ask about the process of developing that particular event and kind of the community interaction that had to happen in order to choose the restaurant and kind of pitch the idea and um, what that process was like. And this is sort of attached to the, to the thought that community engagement is not just, is getting people on board to be part of the event with you. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear a little more about that. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, how did that all come about? So, <clears throat> By the time I got to 2017, I had gained a bit of a reputation um, through my work with BBC Radio Scotland in talking about food and promoting um, a particular uh, music food festival in, here in Scotland. Uh, that festival was the Southern Fried Music Festival. And it, it's the only festival of its kind where the, where the food mirrors the music. So yes, people who are fans of roots music, country, blues, um, rockabilly, all of that could also come and enjoy authentic, air quotes again, authentic um, Southern cuisine or soul food. Promoting a lot of that would happen on radio. Uh, it became quite obvious to people that um, not only do I know what I'm talking about, I can also cook it that helped. That was a big thing. So it was that step of, it's one thing that you are knowledgeable in, in these histories and, and culinary uh, practices, but it's, it's, it's better that you can also cook it. it I suppose it, it 
strengthen my gravitas in this position. So word eventually made made its way to the British Science Festival. And so they are always very keen. The organizers are always keen to try to create uh, really interesting out of the box programming. And so in our conversations, they said, you know, we, we've heard a lot about what you do and it sounds very interesting. What, what would you want to do? And I said, let me have a full evening where we can go through particular courses and talk about how the food is reflected contemporarily speaking, but also its historical uh, background to it. So I'm literally taking them through a culinary tour of slavery at the same time. Because I knew how to cook everything, they trusted me to uh, engage with a particular kitchen of a particular restaurant uh, in that town. And again, if you know anything about restaurants and chefs, they're, they're not keen on letting just random strangers come in. So there's always this need to create a sense of trust. The moment I'm talking, the moment they know, one, my family's from the Caribbean, that's the first hurdle. Two, they see me throwing around yams and cutting things, and I'm talking about my mother and all that. That's another way. So the trust builds very quickly, and we start throwing these stories back and forth of, you ever tried it with this? Oh, did you use this pepper? No, no, my granny would never try that that way. It would be this. So that establishes, she knows what she's doing. I'm going to let her in my kitchen and let her have at it. So that's all sorted. They tend to give me um, pretty much control very quickly because I have found a way to establish my legitimacy in terms of a, a culinary consultant, a historian, an archaeologist, and a chef at the same time. Thanks. That's a fantastic combination. <laughs> well, uh, I suppose that came about because I've always been told if you're going to live from hand to mouth, you better be ambidextrous. And growing up as the daughter of, of uh, immigrants from Haiti, it was required that I learned how to cook and probably, and, and be I suppose, prepare myself for being somebody's wife in the future, something I absolutely hated as a child. But this is something you'll see. Most people who have family from the Caribbean, um, you know, by age six, you're in the kitchen. If, even if it means you're watching the, the pot of beans boiling, you're in the kitchen. And so by the time I got to age 12, I knew how to make everything. I resented it because I saw it as a form of like a type of prison. It wasn't until I went away to, to college and I saw all the nasty stuff we were expected to eat in the dorms. I was like, no, no, I'm not eating this. I'm not having this. And so I started realizing that those skills that were given to me or rather forced upon me have an advantage now. Hi, I'm Alex Simons. I'm a first year PhD in the anthropology here. Uh, mostly interested in uh, human environment interaction in the Bronze Age Near East. Uh, my question, I wanted to kind of ask a little bit more about your research in the Caribbean. Um, 
you talked in your article about the differing experiences of the uh, people in French and British ruled colonies. Um, as I just wanted to ask about what kind of cross-cultural connection there was between the enslaved communities in those areas uh, from a culinary point of view, if any. Thank you, Alex. That's a, a fabulous question right along the same lines as everyone else's amazing questions. There are a lot of, of similarities in terms of culinary practices, the use of certain foodstuffs because of the situation of being enslaved and where so many of the enslaved were coming from in terms of West Africa and Central. So some of the similarities was, is, I, was, I said was, but still is this, um, the, the predominance of particular tubers and carbohydrates that was considered a necessity for a high caloric um, foods needed for the labor that they were going to do in, in, in fields. So the use of um, manioc, the use of plantains, the use of uh, dried beans, and combining the beans with rice, you see that everywhere. It's is it a question of ingenuity or, or just a coincidence? Hard to say. Humans figured out thousands of years ago that you need a bit of carbohydrate and a bit of protein to make the body work best. And pretty much most cultures have some, some way of making that combination of protein and carbohydrate in one meal work. Another kind of, of, uh, uh, another meal that is very common throughout the Caribbean with, of course, their own uh, idiosyncratic changes are one pot meals, the stews. So um, what's called uh, gumbo in New Orleans is very similar to what's called kalalu or pepper pot. So kalalu is in the French islands, um, uh, pepper pot is in the British islands. Um, so how it's flavored, what's in it. There's certain things you always see. So there's a lot of leafy greens in there, usually from the taro plant, which some people call kalalu. So kalalu could be either the plant or the, the meal itself. Um, so that's very common. Um, the use of uh, cornmeal, very common. Certain, certain um, West African uh, peas and yams, very common. A lot, there's a lot of similarities. It's how it gets um, incorporated. And in places like the French Caribbean, after you come out of slavery, there's a lot of French culinary influence, more so. So not just in terms of the way food is made, but even what is chosen to be eaten because of certain um, choices that uh, merchants made, planters made, for example, aki. Aki trees, that Haitians don't, Haitians in the French Caribbean, like Martinique and Guadeloupe, that's not a feature. 
in their diet, um, generally speaking. Um, while peppers are used generously throughout the Caribbean, certain things aren't um, as common in terms of, how would I explain it? How would I explain it? Okay, so beans and rice or peas and rice. French Caribbeans like to use a lot of um, pinto beans, red beans. Cubans like to use black beans, right? Um, and, they, and they have a term for it and they call it um, Christians and, and Moors. Other places like to use a lot of gungo beans. So in certain places you'll see, even in, in their gardens, what they grow, in places like South Florida, you'll say, oh, obviously that, that's a Haitian household. Oh, that's a Cuban household. Oh, that's a Jamaican household. Even by just walking past their gardens because of the tradition, the culinary traditions. So I've given you quite a few similarities, but also how it also differs. Hi, um, so I'm Alice Wolf. I'm a third year PhD student in the Medieval Studies program at Cornell, uh, studying agriculture and food and climate in the first millennium CE. Um, so actually, I have a lot of questions about the work that you've been doing, the archaeological work, but I actually have a question more about the community engagement. So this summer, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, activism and work around statues and taking down these statues um, and that's spread to the UK as well. And I was wondering if you've seen any impact from that in terms of how willing people are to engage with these discussions about Scotland and the slave trade. Um, I know it's probably hard to answer because of COVID and the lack of public events, but I was just wondering if you've seen anything on Twitter or. Oh, I'm sorry, Alice, you're no, no COVID. If anything, it's been quite the opposite because we're captivated, we're, we're captives now. Everything we do is by Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams. I don't know if Microsoft Teams is as popular in the States right now, um, but basically virtual um, you know, webinars and things like that are very, very common. So when you wouldn't have normally had the uh, budget to invite someone from one part of Britain to another, um, you now can do it virtually. You can invite anyone from anywhere. So if anything, it, the conversations around um, uh, restorative justice or reparative justice, questions about uh, a country's involvement in the slave trade or slavery is very frequent. I've been, I've sat on quite a few webinars uh, throughout the summer because of that. So um, yes, far more frequent. How it gets engaged is, well, that's different. Um, because now anyone can have an opinion, right? Like that's, that's the democracy of, of, of social media. Anyone can come out and say, that's all BS. My family never did this. Why do we have to talk about this? Oh my God. Once again, they're passing the buck and blaming someone else for why they're still in the same position as they're in. It's not about slavery. That ended a long time ago. Get over it. There is a lot of that. Um, Scotland in particular is in this weird, as I said, in this weird place where we're still wrapping our heads around how to talk about Scotland's 
involvement in the slave trade. I put the blame, I put some of the blame on historians. I can't fault the average skies person for not knowing about their nation's involvement if it wasn't taught to them. I can fault the gatekeepers who produce this knowledge and actively have chosen to not talk about or interrogate Scotland's involvement in slavery when they want to talk about how great Scotland became because they've got the tobacco lords and the sugar barons. That I have an issue with and am very much um, in favor of always putting a spotlight on, on historians. And the best that we have gotten is this bizarre idea that, okay, well, now we, now we need to talk about it, but we've forgotten because, you know, it's just this historical amnesia. And there is, I, man, that just sets me on fire because amnesia is something that happens to you. So therefore, the Scots, once again, don't get to have, they don't get to own up to their participation because, or, or the memory that they participated because, oops, we got amnesia when it was a conscious choice to marginalize that aspect of the history, to prioritize the wealth that was made because of tobacco lords and sugar barons, but completely disregard and forget that that was off the gross and brutal exploitation of millions of people that were enslaved. Hi, this is Maya again. Building on that, you were just talking about historians in Scotland and I'm interested, what came up in the introduction to the special issue a bit was the role of archaeology. Um, so shifting to that a little bit, what do you, what would you describe as the strengths and limitations of using archaeology to challenge race, class, and gender oppression, a goal that Leah and Scott highlight in the introduction? Thank you, Maya. Well, that has been part of the problem for me in terms of academia. One, archaeology in, in Britain, um, for the most part, does not engage in um, studies with the African diaspora. It's more so classical, um, medieval classical archaeology that's, that's quite prominent, though that's slowly starting to change. These questions that have been pushed forward have about engaging um, or, or using archaeology to engage with, with the wider, wider world and, 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 and the public has for the most part been pushed by people of color. And since there's so few people of color that are archaeologists in general, but then in Scotland or Britain overall, we're talking less than 1%. And outside of myself, I don't know another archaeologist of color that is engaged in the African diaspora. 
in research in the African diaspora. I think this is going to change really soon, and I'll tell you why. Um, unlike the Society for uh, Black Archaeologists, SBA, that exists and has really uh, been able to, to gain a greater spotlight and, and promote more of these conversations, these issues, these, these dilemmas, that hasn't happened in the UK, but that's about to change because I've been involved in helping to create a European version of, of Black archaeologists and allied archaeologists who will, will be able to also partake in, in these, these new conversations. Hi, this is Dusty again, and I have a question that draws on both Maya and Alice's question, and I'm so glad that you were able to bring up this collective dissociative disorder that you term in this article, um, because it particularly had me thinking about my own upbringing and Southern food and how my family has a kind of amnesia about the origin of most of the food we consider so close to our identity as coming from enslaved populations. Um, so my question is, might this kind of public archaeology program revolving around food be as effective in America as you're finding it in Scotland? Ooh, Dusty. I think that will take some very dynamic educators, archeologists, to cut through the ever-growing rift that's happening in terms of race relations in the United States. There is no question that Southern cuisine slash soul food is beloved regardless of race, but as to connecting it to the structures of racial inequity and inequality is where it always seems to, to stop. I'm not quite sure about that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. That's completely fair. It's a, it's a very hard question to ask. I'm thinking, for me at least, it'll be a good point of entry at my Thanksgiving table with my family this year. <laughs> Hi, it's Ethan again. Um, in reading your piece, at one point I was uh, reminded of a previous reading I've done on, uh, by Leland Ferguson on Common Ground, in which he challenged many concepts of cultural loss and showing that. Uh, enslaved people um, though acquiring materials um, that were Western in origin would often use them in traditional African ways. And so I was curious if and how material culture plays into your lecture series and, and these engagements. They do. Um, I, never, uh, I never talk about slave cuisine as a, a, a culinary phenomenon that exists in and of itself related to uh, 
West African practices and foodstuffs. I always state that this is the, the, the melange of European, Asian, African, indigenous American uh, practices and foodstuffs in the manner that best serves the enslaved or best served the enslaved Africans. So um, you do see the, well, okay, so a, a good example of, of that is when South Asian indentured servants um, moved to the Caribbean, forced into the Caribbean to be more accurate in the French and British uh, islands their, their types of curries and preparing food is now part of a very interesting and rich dynamic Creole cuisine that you see in many parts of the Caribbean, not all parts, but many parts. And it is made and easily um, seen as the food of Creole people, even though the vast majority are black and descended from enslaved. So there's that European, um, yeah, I think it's some, uh, I mean, there's, there's black cake that's part of contemporary um, food that uh, a lot of Jamaicans love. You don't see it in the French islands. So it's obviously something that's related to British cuisine. There are a lot of other things like that that you see more so contemporarily that's become part of the, the culture. Um, and, and I think everyone has, everyone embraced that. No one, no one shies away from it. Did I answer the question in the manner that you needed or do I need to clarify? Um, I, I would also be interested in to know if the, like the material culture was expressed and how it was received um, when noted that it might be used in manners different than what um, those not familiar with them are, are in, in manners that are different than those who are familiar with them. So, um, for example, uh, I think Ferguson had noted um, the cooking of food in, in open spaces. Um, so I was curious if those sorts of things factored in, into, into your discussion. Less so in that manner, um, more so in terms of material culture, I tend to look to um, like some of the gaming pieces, right? So the use of, of cream wares and pearl wares that have been broken, these plates and bowls have been broken and rounded off to be used as gaming pieces of what we assume were African-based games. Other other material cultures, um, yeah, I would I would say a lot of of the reuse of vessels, bottles, um, drinking glasses that were once lined the the tables in in terms of finery for for the planter class would be reused in other ways. I actually and and I didn't even conceive of that until seeing. Uh, friends of mine use wine bottles as a rolling pin. So there are multiple ways that we could even imagine actual clear 
practices outside of gaming I have not considered yet. Thank you. Uh, this is Rebecca again. Um, I think I'm going to um, stick with the material culture focus um, because I'm selfishly very partial to cooking pots um, as, a, on a, as a scholarly endeavor. Um, so I guess I would, um, your article uh, really highlighted the importance of zooarchaeological evidence um, in the conclusions you reached about um, uh, in the cuisine of enslaved communities as um, especially black women's resistance. Um, and so I would, I would love to hear more about also the other forms of material culture implicated in food ways that, um, and, and, whether, and how that would factor in um, alongside the zooarchaeological evidence. I'm not sure if I articulated that question well. I'm mostly just thinking that if you're going to cook a one-pot meal, it has to be in a pot somewhere. And so the pot is part of the, the relationship. So I'd love to hear more about that. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, I suppose that I, I did not talk in, in depth about that beyond the, uh, the, the assemblages that demonstrated so many uh, so many shirts associated with bowls and pots, um, whether they be locally produced or um, vessels that were imported in from, from Europe, from France in particular. What, um, besides the, the bowls and the pots, that also uh, reinforces the idea of one pot meals, um, we know that there's so many forms of material uh, culture that we can't find anymore. So the use of the natural gourds that were grown on, on the islands, the calabashes, the gourds, don't have them, unfortunately. Uh, very few um, evident, there's, we didn't have that many uh, pieces of spoons and forks or knives or anything like that which we assume much of it would have been made out of wood or again, calabashes, um, gourds and, and calabashes. Um, I did find it quite interesting that we did, did see quite a bit of, of glassware. And we assume this, these were, were handoffs that were no longer needed, you know, broken. So of, there was a set of six wine glasses and, a few got broken, the rest would be given to the enslaved uh, community or taken going through someone else's, um, you know, going through the planter's garbage and, and re reusing them in their own ways. Um, trying to think. I think, yeah. Um, my belief is that much of what was used, we can't find outside of the, the hard-fired earthenwares. Uh, hi, it's Alex again. Uh, I have a, another question uh, about the sort of food practices that you discussed. Um, from re your, reading your article, it seemed that there were, the planter class was quite deliberately restrictive in the foods that they provided. Um, 
but you also discussed the uh, availability that uh, enslaved people were able to eat and use salted meats and fish. And so I wondered how they were acquiring those, whether it was from the planter class or whether there were other people involved in uh, the procurement of those goods. Thank you, Alex. So it was required by law, right, by the Code Noir that salted provisions were supposed to be given to them, to the enslaved. And we, we have come across uh, uh, historical documents, his, um, primary sources that were like, the slaves are freaking out. They, need, they want their meat and we got to do something. Right, so there was something that they would—they were willing to to go into a formal protest over. The desire for meat cannot be under understated. While there were situations that um, prevented them from consuming or or gaining access to salted meats from the planter, whether because he was stingy or because. There were all these um, unpredictable, inconsistent uh, cargo ships. Because let, let's be let's be clear, you had hurricanes happening. The Caribbean was awash with with pirates and and privateers who were always, um, you know, hijacking these ships. But even when planters did provide salted meat. It may not have been um, as consistent either because they wanted to or because they didn't care. But there's always a black market in terms of an, an, an island economy. So there was always a way to get things um, when they absolutely wanted them. Can I tell you that it was a consistent, uh, consistent access for salted meat, I can't tell you that. I can't, I don't have the, the records of plantation um, management that said, and this month we had this come in and next month we had that come in. I can't tell you that. All I can say is that it was not consistent. And so what we have, so archeologically speaking, also seems to say the same thing, which is why there was this Ex extreme dependence on the marine resources, exploiting, and they were lucky enough. I mean, this plantation was close enough that they could send someone off. Um, that wasn't the case for for many other places, um, and so this was this problem of, of 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 malnutrition was always uh, a worry in many ways. But of course, as we know, those who were in a position to either uh, grow, um, I'm sorry, um, maintain livestock would often not keep that for themselves. They would sell that at the markets for, for provisions or any other kind of materials that they wanted more. So there was, so there's, there's a black market as well as a for, as well as an informal um, economy, island economy that is being run and managed by uh, enslaved people that helped to gain access to certain foodstuffs that they may have wanted. But as to the actual amount per month, I can't tell you that because we had so few records. Um, 
This is Alice again. I actually have a related question from Caitlin Lagrasta, who's one of the archaeology MA students who was going to participate in this podcast, but then wasn't able to. Um, she was wondering about how the enslaved communities gathered the marine resources. Is there evidence? Was it just by walking at low tides, or was there any evidence for nets or fishing poles or other sorts of um, material culture aspects of that? Thank you, Alice. That's a great question. The um, the chitin, the whelks, um, a lot of these other uh, um, bivalves and mollusks, low tide. You just walk along and and see them. You you can still find them the same way now. Um, of course, not in the abundance that occurred uh, several hundred years ago, and certainly not in the size that they would have been able to grow um, when they weren't being exploited so heavily. You just, all you needed was maybe a somewhat of a, a sharp rock or tool to help, you know, pull them off the rocks, but that's it. Um, I would also say that's prob that is possibly one of the reasons why we don't find as many um, conch shells or evidence of consuming conch because conch are actually in the water on sandy bottoms. And where the plantation is located and access to the coast, it's, it's not shallow. So you don't, need, you don't need nets. You can just walk out to these rocky um, intertidal zones. If the tide is out, you can walk even further. But it's, it's quite rough where you would walk and see. So you, you didn't have to worry about getting wet or needing any extra um, tools to, to get the majority of those um, bivalves and um, mollusks and other shellfish. Thank you so much, Dr. Funash, for joining us for this podcast and for sharing your work with us today. We really appreciate your participation in the Radio Siam's podcast. You've been listening to Radio Siam's, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast, which will be posted next month, will be with Rachel Watkins from American University. Radio Siam's is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.